From the Three Story Method Podcast Network. This is the Serial Fiction Show. I'm Christine Daigle. And I'm J.P. Reinbush. Welcome to the Reader's Serial Fiction Show. Today, we've got a YA mythic fantasy story by Greg R. Fishbone called Becoming Hercules. The spawn of a dragon, the disgraced daughter of a powerful merchant, a small statured soldier, and seven gated thieves, they will gather to redeem their honor, save their kingdom, and discover important truths along the way. With one foot in Greek mythology and the other in supernatural fantasy, Becoming Hercules will delight fans of the Percy Jackson series, Lore Olympus, and the Song of Achilles. And now, here's a sample of Becoming Hercules, Episode 1. Pasture of the One Tree, Theban Countryside, Year 946 of the Heroic Age. Pyrrha gave the fence a tug to test its strength. Her brother, Lycomedes, gazed past the fence with longing toward a distant pomegranate tree, raised like treasure on an altar-shaped hill. Only their five-year-old sister, Haniaki, seemed unconcerned with the upcoming challenge. She played with bugs in the grass, while the elder children spoke in low voices, steps away from the curious eyes and twitching ears of an enormous white bull. That beast has really come to hate me, Lycomedes confided, wild-eyed and paranoid, keeping his back turned in case the bull had learned to read lips. Just like a nine-year-old boy, Pyrrha thought. Fortunately for him, Pyrrha was ten, and, as a future princess, had no time for such nonsense. Of course the bull hates you. Your face has that effect on everyone. Lycomedes ignored the jibe. It doesn't have to like me, as long as I can hold its attention. That's the important part of the plan. But if I fail, and if the bull starts coming your way... Pyrrha imagined being trapped at the top of the hill with the bull surging upward toward her, its muscles rippling, its hooves tearing into the turf. A shiver ran down her limbs. What? she asked. Would you do then? I'd make a loud noise to alert you, Lycomedes promised. Don't worry, I'll make sure you have plenty of time to get away. Pyrrha narrowed her eyes. Everything that comes out of your mouth is a loud noise. How will I know the difference? Lycomedes looked down, tapping his foot in thought. I'll quack like a duck, he decided. A duck? He formed his bent elbows into wingtips and flapped his arms to accompany a spirited imitation of a duck's call. Maybe, if that duck had been set afire while being pressed upon a large rock. Hinaki squealed in delight. Again! Do it again! Pyrrha's shiver became a convulsion. I'm sorry, Pyrrha. That's the best duck call I can make. Lycomedes took his sister's hand, which felt odd to them both, as she was more often the one to comfort him. Maybe you should distract the bull while I pick the pomegranates? Pyrrha tilted her head. Do you imagine that you and I are so completely interchangeable? Lycomedes grinned. Not at all. I'm much prettier than you. He batted his eyelashes and winked. Pyrrha laughed 
and the two siblings shoved each other back and forth, while Hineaki danced around them both, singing a song of Papa Graditz, Papa Graditz, Papa Graditz on a hill. She required no other lyrics than that. But all too soon, the jokes and songs ran out, and a crushing silence pressed inward from all directions. On the other side of the fence, past the back side of the bull, where the flat pasture bunched upward like a wrinkled cone of green cloth, the ancient tree loomed and waited. I should go pick that fruit now, Pira sighed. Hineaki launched herself at Pira with a big grappling hug that nearly knocked the breath out of her. Don't worry, big sister. I'll keep you safe. I'll make a pile of offerings and pray and pray and pray for the gods to protect you. Thank you, said Pira, tossing her sister's hair. Be quick and quiet, and you'll be fine, Lycomedes advised. She will, Hineaki nodded. Those pomegranates will never see her coming. She smiled up at Pira, and the last veil of doubt lifted from the older girl's mind. She'd never have risked her life for Lycomedes and his dubiously magical fruit, but she'd have faced ten bulls rather than disappoint her favorite little five-year-old shadow. Pira snatched the two willow baskets from the ground. You'd better quack loud enough to shake the clouds, she told Lycomedes. Quack, he agreed. Pira wished she could draw that moment out for a while longer, but Hineaki was already yanking up handfuls of grass to place onto her altar of dirt, while Lycomedes, with his back turned to them, approached the fence. The bull trod a weary arc and gave the boy its full attention. For now. All right, so Greg, what inspired you to write this? This is a project I've been working on for some time. Uh, I was doing it as a novel and, you know, working on it and researching it. And I, I, the pandemic hit and I started putting out poems based on the manuscript and getting into a weekly release schedule uh, and kind of liked having something out there and having to put something out there. Uh, every week and then when Vela was announced it was the perfect thing because I could I could do it as as prose as story keep the release schedule that I that I was was doing with with the story already um, but just have a different way to tell it and 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 just have this this depth of the characters in the world already established so uh, I'm really excited about this yeah I'm excited about it too and I really uh, love that you're doing a a traditional mythology telling in a modern way. I think that's really exciting. I'm sure there's going to be lots of epic quests and monsters ahead. Uh, so do you have the whole series planned out or are you going to take a look at audience participation and maybe change it up based on audience response? I'm definitely open to audience response because it's set in Greek mythology and there are some some points that have to be hit. There's there's some guidelines. So it, it's a project that that has has guidelines, but within those guidelines, there's a lot of area for exploration, and and there there are a lot of there are a lot of lesser known myths that 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 can fall into that, and speculation about myths that we don't have, but we have hints of, and I and I'm I'm going more strongly into that area because uh, when you go back to the source material, uh, it it becomes clear that there were different variations of a lot of stories, 
and and we tell one version, but there were there were at one time many versions uh, in different regions of, of Greece uh, and throughout Rome. And and some of those we have we have them, or we have hints of them, or we can speculate about what they might have been like. And and it's it's really fun to put something out that's both familiar but also just new and different, wild. Yeah, definitely. So going on that, what kind of research did you do in making this story? I've I've been reading a lot of the the classical sources. Uh, I've been reading the, the the Athenian plays, the the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, but also the a lot of the work of um, there was a travel writer from the second century who went into Greece and just recorded everything he saw, and there were he talked to people and got some of the local folk tales. And he described some of the, 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 the statues. And, and when he came to Thebes, which is where the story is set, he described some, some statues that were made to honor heroes that, that, that were in stories that were very important to the people of Thebes uh, that didn't get into the version of Thebes that, that, that the Athenians were, were telling. So, so I'm, I'm veering toward that direction. I'm veering towards the the more more Theban version of the Theban cycle, um, with with some of the characters that are described by Pastanius. So, with that in mind, have you ever been to Greece or Italy? I have not. Uh, I would love to go. Um, I'm doing the best I can to describe what I imagine it to be like. Uh, there, there are there are limits to the imagination. So, um, I'm sure readers who have been there or who live there uh, will give me feedback and help me to adjust. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that reader interaction. What is one thing about the story that you want listeners to know or be excited about? I, I want listeners to be excited about the possibility of restoring something that was lost. And, and, and there, there are a lot of reasons why these stories were lost. And, and some of them were gatekeepers who thought, well, you know, there's, there's, you know, too many prominent women in this story. We have to, we have to, you know, not tell this story as much. Or um, this, this story has LGBTQ characters, and in ancient Greece that was accepted. And then it, for a period of time, it wasn't, and those stories were cut off from from the the canon. And and there's a chance to restore uh, a lot of the representation when when you think of Greek mythology and and Roman mythology. We we. We have this image of you know this 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 you know what what's come down to us through modern and, and, and medieval times that that really is kind of a distortion. I'm I'm excited about trying to restore uh, some of what I think and what they, what there's evidence of uh, having existed in the ancient in the ancient world. Uh, it was a very multicultural environment. It, it was there there was there was the, the Greeks were influenced by the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and all the, all the peoples living around them. Uh, and these, these stories are multicultural stories. Excellent. So when I was reading your first episode, I loved your characterization of Pyrrha. And I love that she decides to risk the bull, not to prove something to Lycomedes, but so she doesn't disappoint uh, Henayake. So, and maybe she has some pride to maintain when Hideaki says they'll never see her coming. I'm just curious if you have a favorite character in this story that may be the main character or a side character. Uh, I, I love I love all the characters so much, um, and, and I and I try to put something into them that that you know each each one has something a little bit different that 
their trait. Um, yeah, Kira is is very spunky and very independent, and she 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 feels like she needs to be in charge, a and she doesn't she she doesn't necessarily go along with everything that 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 her brother believes in. He's 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 on, but he's the more superstitious one. But between the two of them, they get into so much trouble, and then Hineaki is just is just there because she wants to be in the mix. She wants to be involved. She wants to be be doing things, and she worships Kira so. Kira, Kira feels like she has to live up to this image that her younger sister has of her, uh, and that's one of her motivating factors. So, will the whole story be told through Kira's eyes, or will other voices kind of come into play as we move along in the story? I have three uh, main characters that, that we're going to be shifting between, so, so Kira is one of them, uh, Alcus and Iphicles are, are two others. Uh, the stories are going to intertwine and and come together and verge apart, but tell one long overlapping story that overarching story that uh, moves moves the plot forward. And there there are there are a couple of famous stories that I have in mind that this is sort of a bridge between. So so it's going to be interesting to see how how these stories also interact with uh, the received Greek mythology that we have. And you hinted at Persephone with the pomegranates. I'm just wondering if Persephone and Hades and the underworld come into play in this story. Persephone will be there in person as a personification um, right at the start. And she is a fun character and will be driving a lot of the story, at least in the background. But, but that, that's, that's going to get what gets Kira's arc going. That's, that's her, her inciting. Uh, she has this epiphany and and she um i don't want to spoil too much but she has a she has a certain talent for having visions and and having having seeing things that other people can't see uh and this will be this will be one of those incidents very nice this is kind of an abstract question, but what do you like most about putting this story into a serial fiction? What, what I'm having fun with is uh, when I was writing it as a novel, uh, I had one point of view. I had Pierre's point of view. And I, I knew, you know, as, as an author, I knew more about the world and more about the characters. And, and I knew that there was politics going on. And I knew that there was different parts of, of the city that she wasn't in at the time or wasn't exploring at the time. Now I have three characters that are just going all over the place and interacting with, with all different factions and kinds of people, and it's making the, the settings seem a lot more real, um, to, to, to me even, um, because I, I, can, I, I have to figure out how this city works. And I, and I want to bring the city to life. I want, I want the city of Thebes to be a character in itself. So, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of research into what people wore, what people ate, um, what what people did, what prof what professions were available, uh, how the society worked, tweaking it a little bit to, to to modern sensibilities, but really really trying to trying to bring it out as as a setting, so that it's not just a generic, you know, oh this is kind of a Greek mythology themed fantasy. This is this is going to be Greek mythology as a world. Excellent. Why do you think people are so drawn to stories about mythology? I think a, a definition of mythology that I like is that these are stories that a culture tells to itself about itself. And, and, and in the modern world, I think what's 
especially recently, we have superhero stories that are the modern mythology. And if you look at the themes of it, the themes of power, especially people becoming empowered, people people feeling like there's there's you know the, the, there are there are conspiracies out to get them or whatever. That's what that's what draws us to mythology. And and these these classical stories have have become classics, be, you know, for thousands of years because uh, something in them still speaks to our culture and our and our heritage uh, and, and our and our shared world heritage because. These, these stories influenced and were influenced by other world cultures, uh, and they resonate. On the spot. If you can't pick one, I'll accept three, but do you have a favorite myth or mythological character? Oh, boy. I like Achilles, um, as, as far as the Trojan War goes. I like disliking Odysseus. I, I think Odysseus is kind of a jerk. And Hercules. Um, and I've, I've felt like, I, like I, need, I need to understand this character better. So, so a, a lot of my thinking about this, the series I'm working on uh, is kind of working through, you know, this character who was, who was such a large part of uh, the mythology and, and played, had, had, had such, a, such a, an epic story of, of his own. Um, what, what, is, what is his role and how does he relate to this world? Uh, so, so I think I think those would be my three. Yeah, I never really realized what a jerk Odysseus was. I don't think I reflected on that too much until I read Circe, and I was like, "Yeah, Odysseus was a jerk." <laughs> I never really realized how bad that yeah. was. <laughs> Did you used to watch the Hercules cartoons as a kid? We used to get those in reruns. They uh, were super old, and it usually just involved him chucking a lion over his head or something. Like that. I, I've never <laughs> seen. No, I've never seen those. <laughs> I'm sure they are very uh, mythologically inaccurate, but I remember seeing those reruns as a kid. There, there was a cartoon about Odysseus in space. Um, it was it was like like Odyssey 2025 or some some cra- twenty something like that. It was it was crazy, but uh, that, I need to find that. Yeah, That's pretty right? much my wish list for anything ever. Just take it and make it in space. So now I have to go find. Put that. it in space. Put it in space. Awesome. Okay, I have one last question. Does Lycomedes ever learn to quack like a proper duck? <laughs> Not yet. That might come back. And, and if, if readers are interested in that, I'll find a way to make it happen. Yeah, it, 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 he's just bad at animal imitations. I thought it was delightful. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Greg, for joining us today. We appreciate you talking to us. Well, sure. Yes, thanks. Thank you. Our thanks today to Greg R. Fishbone for letting us share their episode. If you liked it, you can read their first three episodes free on Kindle Vella. The link is in the show notes. Also, if you're a writer, we have a companion podcast, The Writer's Serial Fiction Show, where we talk with authors about their stories and discuss the elements of writing compelling serial fiction. Finally, we want to thank you for listening to The Reader's Serial Fiction Show. If you know someone who might enjoy the show, send them your favorite episode link. And if you want to leave an Apple podcast review, we read all of them and use your suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks. And we'll see you next time for another serial fiction episode. And that's that's a wrap. wrap.
right. Enjoy your Massachusetts <laughs> Monday. Do you have air conditioning? Yeah. I hear that like most people in Massachusetts don't have air conditioning. Is that we, true? We don't. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I'm out on the, out on the veranda. And, Is it uh, hot there? It, you know, it's, I think it's going to get up into the 80s today. Uh, yeah. Not too bad. 80s with no air conditioning. I don't know if I could deal. <laughs> I'm in Canada and I have air conditioning. Madness. 